Our scripture passage today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can be seated. Good morning. I pray that this day finds you walking faithfully with Christ, or if not walking faithfully, then under the convicting and the transforming power of his Holy Spirit. It is my prayer that as we approach God's word together this morning, that we will do so with the hopeful expectation that God will move among us. The hopeful expectation that his spirit will not leave us the same as when we entered this place. Beloved, we do not gather merely to enjoy nice pleasantries. We don't gather just to catch up with friends or to hear some stories from the Bible. We gather to worship our God. And as we worship our God, we trust that God is preparing us for all that he has prepared for us as we go about our lives. In reality, we train for war because we are at war with sin and we are at war with a myriad of antichrist religions, philosophies, ideologies, and systems in the world all around us. This gospel call that we return to every week, it is calling us verse by verse to radical action. It's calling us to leave behind any claim of a life of ease or comfort, anything that we think we are owed, and to be able to give everything of ourselves to follow Christ. We are called to renounce our earthly citizenship and to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This morning we come to the sixth and the final, you have heard but I say, statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What would have taken Jesus likely only a few minutes to speak, we have taken six weeks to unpack. Yet we could easily have given each of these more time than this, because these statements are overflowing with implications for our everyday lives. Jesus, in this relatively short passage, revealed that the way that men had been trying to approach the law of God, the way that men had been trying to please the standard of God, had completely missed the mark. The teachers of the day, those who were wise, those well-learned and knowledgeable scribes and Pharisees, with more scripture memorized than you or I are likely ever to have committed to memory. These men missed 
the mark. God's intention was for so much more than just a simple compliance to a rigid system. In fact, God was after something that no amount of human willpower could produce or fake. God's desire was for a people who were, as we will see this morning in our passage, perfect. That is to say, a people who are complete, who are mature, who are genuine, and not by some technicality according to a written code or a man-made tradition, but according to the very nature of God himself. According to the teaching of Jesus, the desire of God was that the whole spirit of the law, based on his perfect nature, that that would be our standard. God's nature reflected in his law. We cannot reduce the law of God to a simple series of do's and don'ts. The nature of God is to be such a part of Christ's disciples that it flows out from them in loving obedience that it presents itself in ways unanticipated by the unspiritual man. That same unspiritual man who binds himself only to the most generous rendering of any standard. Well, so far, Jesus has given us five examples of how this perfect obedience looks like how this perfect obedience to the nature and law of God might present itself within the Christian. And this week, as I said, we will look at the sixth and final example. But before we get to that, I ask that you would join with me in prayer. Father, I I do pray that your spirit would move within us such that when we hear things like we are being called to perfection, that we wouldn't just shut off our ears and stop listening and just throw our hands up in the air and say, that's not possible, so, so why should we even care? But that we would desire to understand what it means to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. What it means to love our enemies and that we would strive by the power of your spirit to live in this way, to be this way, to be like our master. As disciples of Jesus, we desire to be fully trained that we might be like Christ. Father, work in this place. Remove me or any other distraction from the message. Let your word penetrate beyond the barriers that we might try to put up. Do what is impossible. Make us like Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we recall, the disciple of Christ does not hate his brother. If you remember from earlier in this section that just wishing somebody's destruction 
to, to thinking these kind of ill thoughts towards a brother was, was a way of killing them. So hatred was tied with murder. The disciple of Christ does not lust after someone who was not their spouse. Lusting after another person was a way of committing adultery with them. The misplaced affections and desires is unfaithfulness. The disciple of Christ does not pursue divorce. That one flesh union of husband and wife is life long. To step outside of that is an act of adultery. Or to send your spouse away is to drive them to adultery. The words of men cannot separate what God has joined. The disciple of Christ does not make bold vows before men and then debate as to whether or not he actually has to keep his word or is bound by them. His yes means yes. His no means no. His faithfulness is not in question to any who are around him and know him. Honesty and integrity are expected and they are delivered. The disciple of Christ does not seek vengeance or retribution. He does not hold tightly to his rights when he has been wronged. And he seeks his satisfaction in life in Christ, not in men. And finally, this morning, we'll see that not only does the disciple not fight for his personal rights, but even when he is wronged, he will return love for hate and prayer for persecution. We will just see that the disciple of Christ is more than merely a servant, though a servant to Christ he is. More amazingly, the disciple of Christ is a son to the Father who is in heaven. We begin by looking at the old, what the Old Testament taught concerning the issues at hand. The first half of what Jesus attributed to the Pharisees' teaching in our passage this morning was found in Leviticus 19 from the, past, from the section of verses 8 through 19. So if you turn with me, turn with me there, Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. Leviticus is just the third book of the Bible. We'll go to the beginning and just go three books up. Leviticus 19... 9 through 18. There we read, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse a deaf man or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How many of you knew that the Old Testament law gave so much concern for the daily dealings of God's people with between each other? Well, even though a, a large list of behaviors is listed in this passage, it is clear that these passages and these commands represent a mindset that God's people are to have as they relate to one another and as they relate to outsiders. So how does the law describe loving our neighbor? It says to leave the corner of your crops unharvested and the grapes that fall in your vineyard so that others may gather it and eat. Understand that there will be those around you who are poor, who do not have as much as they need, or those who are traveling and, and cannot take for their care of themselves in the normal means. Even though it has a real cost attached to it, the, the people of God were commanded to leave there, that people would have a means. This isn't just a blanket handout. It was a way for people who were there who didn't have means other way to be able to get what they needed without begging, without becoming destitute. Do not steal or deal falsely with one another. Do not lie to one another. Do not use God's name to take advantage of one another. Reason with one another openly and honestly. Don't seek to confuse or manipulate someone into getting an advantage for yourself. When someone does work for you, give them what you've promised to give them. And when the work is complete, do not withhold what you owe. There is even concern in this passage for those that are disabled, that they will be well treated be out of the fear of the Lord. They are not to be cursed or troubled, but cared for and treated respectfully. Be fair and just in your dealings with others. Don't give preference to the poor, nor to the rich. Do not slander or seek the downfall of others. Take no vengeance and bear no grudge. And how is all that signed up, summed up? How are all those commands summed up in that passage? It is love your neighbor as yourself. Lest we think this is a fluke in the Old Testament, an isolated teaching, turn with me to Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. Just one book forward, Exodus 23, 1 through 9. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in the, with, with, in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuits. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent as righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe binds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart 
of the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Of course, we see a very similar theme in this passage. What I, what I love specifically about this passage is that it gives specific examples. It leaves no doubt that this neighborly treatment that we are called to in loving our neighbors as ourself, that that cannot just be applied to those who like us, who treat us well. We cannot just apply that to those from whom we expect to receive anything. It applies to those who have made themselves our enemies and who are known to hate us. Do not spread a false report. Specifically, do not get caught up in a mob mentality and speak falsehood just because everybody around you is doing it. I think that verse needs to be on a bunch of pillows in our homes and on postcards that we send to everybody we know. That is the spirit of the age. To get caught up with the wicked to repeat lies. Because everybody is doing it, and to not do it will single yourself out. Do not pervert justice due to the poor. Just because a poor man has no recourse and cannot hire the fancy lawyers in order to seek what he is owed, does not mean that we can be less generous with him. Take no bribes. Scripture is clear. God hates bribes. They pervert justice both by advancing lies and by giving preference to the rich. And what about people that aren't like us or people who aren't kind to us? Do we owe them anything? I'm sure most of us would love for it to say, no, we don't. But yes, we do. If you find an animal that was lost, that belongs to your enemy, you don't just say, hmm, an extra animal for me. Or you don't just say, ha, he's going to be looking for that and laugh at his misfortune. No, you bring the animal back to him, which is a nuisance for you. Or if you find his animal in distress, again, you cannot celebrate his misfortune. You must help and return it to its master. Unless we get confused, this isn't about being nice to the animal. This is about dealing honestly and fairly with those who will not do so with you. Similarly, the people were told to treat the stranger and the sojourner among them well. They could not, they ought not, they must not take advantage of someone who didn't know the customs of their land or somebody who might not have the same set of means or ability to defend themselves or advance their own cause because they were strangers among them. The love for one's neighbor is indeed commanded in the Old Testament both explicitly and through a myriad of commandments concerning how God's people were to treat one another, even their enemies in their midst. Certainly, it presented in a much more robust way in the Old Testament than the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching in Jesus' day. Remember, Christ hailed this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself as the second great commandment on which the whole law and the prophets rested, eclipsed only by the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Find that charge or that, that teaching of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. 
Okay, so if we have established well from our passage this morning, that we have indeed been commanded in Scripture to love our neighbor, what about the second half of the Pharisee's statement? What about the second half of what Jesus addresses? Does the Old Testament command us to have hatred for our enemies? Well, if you look in the, through the Old Testament, no Old Testament command exists that demands the hatred of our enemies. There is simply no such imperative from God. And as we read earlier, there are places where it is explicitly commanded that we treat our enemies fairly and justly, that we show them love. However, if we are going to be fair, even to the scribes and Pharisees and, and beloved as Christians, we must be fair when we deal with the arguments of those with whom we disagree. We cannot make a caricature out of those we disagree with in order to try and show them as being silly or foolish. We actually must deal with the best that our adversaries have to offer to treat them fairly and justly with their arguments. So if we're going to do that with the scribes and Pharisees, it is not hard to see where a person might get a bit confused on that issue. If we look at some of the things that were commanded by God for the nation of Israel throughout their history and their relationship with the surrounding people, we might understand a little bit how someone might be tempted to think that God does want us to hate our enemies. Just a couple of examples when Israel entered into the promised land after wandering through the desert for over 40 years, God commanded them to completely destroy and drive out the Canaanites who were living in the land. That's in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. Completely destroy. God did command them to destroy every man, woman, and child. There were curses made against nations like the Moabites, for their harsh treatment of Israel on their journey. Curses that extended for generation after generation. Read about that in Deuteronomy 23.3. We can even look at the words of, in the Psalms and see how the psalmist cried out often for the destruction of his enemies. He spoke boldly about his hatred about, of all those who did not fear the Lord. Psalm 26.5. He even rejoiced at the destruction of his enemies. Psalm 35, 8 and 9. But the question remains, do these examples teach us that we should or that we must hate our enemies? Well, I do not believe that they do. And apparently, by our passage this morning, Christ didn't either. What we have in these examples is the justice of God and his favor of his people Israel worked out on a national scale. The nations that were destroyed or cursed were treated justly and fairly by God through the means of his people. They did not honor him or worship him. They placed themselves in oppositions to God's people as they went where God commanded them. They actively sought to corrupt to bring God's people into idolatry. They spread gross depravity across the land. They deserved what they got as God's people came in and were to bring them to utter destruction. 
Because when we think about the God who is love, we cannot forget that he is also the God of justice. He is also a jealous God whose wrath will be satisfied. We see many examples in the Old Testament of God's justice flowing forth in his wrath. And often, he used the nation of Israel as a means of that justice. Of course, often God used these pagan nations as a means of that justice against Israel when they fell into idolatry. David understood this. David's zeal for the glory of God was so great that he desired God's justice to be done on all of his enemies in the land. We may not always see the working out of God's wrath and justice as we look around us, but scripture is clear that the current patience of God does not mean that his wrath has cooled or that his justice will go unsatisfied. These examples that we have discussed do not teach us to hate because someone has set themselves up against us, which let's be honest, the most of the time when we're tempted to hate, it's because somebody has offended us, that they have dared acted against us, that they have dared not advance us. No, these examples teach us to long for all evil to cease. They teach us to long for the justice of God to be metered out. And they remind us of the sovereign plan of God for his people and of the wrath that is being stored up for sinners on the day of judgment. Well, to justify such a strict policy of hatred towards their enemies, the Pharisees first had to establish an extremely narrow view of what it meant to be one's neighbor. In the strictest sense, even in the Old Testament, the na- neighbor did, that term typically did primarily relate to fellow Israelites. Let's be fair about that. However, the Old Testament did not limit neighborly kindness only to fellow Israelites. It also promoted it and commanded it to the alien, to the sojourner. And even as we saw in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 19, to one who has set his hate upon us or has become our enemy. We can see from Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 30-37, that in practice, the Jewish people believed that they were legally bound to keep away from those who were not like them. By Jesus' day, hatred towards outsiders was seen as someone's patriotic duty, even seen as the natural outflow of loving your neighbor. Because if you limit who is my neighbor to who, he who is just like I am, then hating everybody else is showing love to those who are just like me. Such was the perversion of God's law among the people. When the Old Testament spoke of wrath and judgment towards the enemies of God, it was in the context of justice. Along with the consistent testimony presented in the Old Testament that God will judge and destroy those who rebel against him, along with that was a continual picture of mercy and grace towards God's people time and again when they went astray. And not just towards God's people. There were times when God would offer mercy to a very wicked people. 
if they would just repent of their sin, if they would turn to him and recognize him as God of this world. Just think of the book of Jonah or in the book of Daniel, when on one hand, an entire nation against the will of the prophet sent to them, repented. Or when the great king of kings in Babylon recognized the true God as God. Well, the problem with the Pharisees' understanding of how they were to treat the nations around them was they failed to make a distinction between God's grace and his just punishment of sin. They took a judicial principle that God's wrath will be satisfied, must be satisfied for sin, and they put that into practice in their everyday life, in their affairs with other people. They took such a narrow definition of neighbor, that narrow definition we have discussed, and they joined it to their immediate need to see justice done on everyone who is not included in that narrow definition, to see justice done on everyone who was not for them. They taught that it was responsibility of every good Israelite to hate their enemies, to hate everybody who was not one of them. It is only radical self-delusion and blindness that would allow the scribes and Pharisees to see all the warnings of judgments in the Old Testament and then to walk away believing that they were not only in the clear, but that they were in a position to look down on the other nations. God had judged the nations of the earth many times. He will do so again. Yet the nation of Israel had also found herself under the judgment of God. Her leaders had a history of proclaiming peace, peace. When there was in fact no peace, they would cry peace to the people to soothe, to comfort the people's hurts superficially. When there was no peace, when judgment was around the corner, when the kingdom of heaven was at hand and the destruction was sure to follow. We know that they believed that the righteous thing for the Jew to do was to avoid and hate the rest of the world. Of course, we know that the scorn of the scribes and the Pharisees was not reserved just for those strangers and aliens, not just for the nations around them. As we read about how they treated our Lord when they recognized who he was or what he claimed to be, and they threatened him when he made claims of being the son of God, the chosen one of Israel, then Christ threatening their authority, their influence among the people, he became their enemy. And so violent was their hatred of him that they would partner even with the despised Romans, the worst of the Gentiles. They partnered with the worst of the Gentiles in order to crush their enemy, In Jesus, at least so they thought they were doing to him. I cannot think of their opposition to Christ without picturing in my mind the scene before Pilate. As the crowd around them, following the encouragement of these same Jewish leaders, cried out when Pilate said, this man is innocent, 
cried out, let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Beloved, justly did that judgment fall on them in that very generation. We'll spend some time this coming Friday remembering what our Lord went through under the combined derision of the Jewish religious leaders and their strange allies, the Romans. So how did Jesus respond to this teaching of the Pharisees? His response was that far from hating their enemies, his disciples were to love their enemies and pray for those who persecuted them. And those prayers were not just, it wasn't love your enemies and pray that God would snap their necks or pray that God would break their legs or pray that God would hurt them or make them give you everything you want. That, that's not the kind of prayer. Pray for their good. It would be hard to imagine a more stonk, stark contrast to what the Pharisees had been teaching the people. In the previous statement, Jesus told them that they were to refrain from seeking any retribution or vengeance when they had been wronged. And now he moves on in this passage to tell them that they were to do even more. It wasn't enough for them to, to hold back what they wanted to do. They were to love and pray for their enemies. It is no accident that there is such close proximity in this passage to love and prayer. Love for someone, prayer for them. These are very closely related, mutually supportive. I'm sure that many of you have seen this play out in your own lives in the past. The more we love someone, the more we pray for them. The more we pray for them, the more our love becomes for them, the greater it becomes. So try this. If you haven't tried this before, try this. When you are struggling with your feelings towards somebody, when you are struggling with them, when you are feeling anger and frustration, when you feel something inside of you that you know is on the verge or wanting to turn towards hate, each time you have a negative thought about them, right then and there, pray for them. Pray that God will bless them. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would use them as a miraculous picture of his grace. Pray for their good and joy in Christ and see what it will do toward, with your attitude toward them. I've been amazed at what this has done in my life in the past. Jesus told his disciples that they must not be content with the kind of love that is natural to sinners. We cannot claim that we are being obedient to the commands of Christ simply because we are good to those who are good to us or that we show kindness and love towards those who are just like us. Even the tax collectors. Remember, the tax collectors uh, really weren't anything above prostitutes in most people's estimation in this time period. Even the tax collectors and the common Gentiles, even they loved those who loved them back. Even they treated well those who would treat them well back. Love, there is nothing that a fallen man loves more than himself. It is in his nature to love those, to act kindly towards those whom he feels will best suit his needs and his desires. 
All of his relationships are built around what he can get from others, either through taking advantage of them or by trading what he wants, trading what they want for what he wants to get from them. God's people are to love so much more completely and indiscriminately than this. We must show love in a way that is utterly unnatural to the unbelieving world. Jesus gave us the greatest example of loving our enemies, showing love apart from any consideration of what we can receive from that person. But what does this look like in action? Well, Jesus and a couple of his early followers give us very concrete, radical examples of what it means to love and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 23, 34, as Jesus was being crucified on the cross, as he was hanging there in utter agony, the only innocent man ever to be executed in this world, the only innocent man ever to have anything bad done to him, the only innocent man, period, hanging on that cross. And yet he prayed that God would forgive those men who had driven the nails, who had put him there, because they did not know what they were doing. So in his own life, he gave us the ultimate example of praying for those who persecute you. Okay, but you might say, Jesus is God. Of course, that's why he was able to do that. He's God. I'm not God. Well, how about someone who is just a man? In Acts 7.60, we see Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church, following directly in his Savior's footsteps. As he was being stoned to death by the jealous, zealous Jews who were trying to stamp out all the followers of Jesus, as he was being stoned... He prayed that God would not hold the sin of their, his murderers against them. Following exactly in the footsteps of his Savior. Well, you might say, well, he could do that because he was about to die. He was never going to have to see them again. He knew he was about to be in glory. So he had some kind of supernatural strength in that moment to ask that God would not hold that against them. Okay, what about when you are hurt, some, hurt deeply by somebody, abandoned, rejected by somebody, and you know you will have to see them again? Is that hitting a little closer to home? Perhaps it's not as dramatic, but nonetheless extremely difficult. We read in 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul, while he was in prison, recounting to Timothy how he had been abandoned in his hour of need how he was not being taken care of, those that should have been standing aside beside him, encouraging him, strengthening him, caring for him, had abandoned him in his need. And even then his prayer was that those who had abandoned him would not have their failures charged against them. And Paul would have had opportunity again to see them. Yet he prayed for them. Clearly, we cannot exclude our enemies from being numbered among our neighbors, and we are called to love them. 
That includes the list of things that we read about in the Old Testament law, as well as praying for them, even as they strike us down. Yet again, the call of Jesus proves to be extremely radical and completely at odds with the culture, both the culture in his day and in ours. Jesus said that we must love and pray for our enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The love of God is our reason, is our ability, and it is our strength for this unnatural kind of love. His example removes any excuse that we might give. Our text here even goes into that God showed grace, shows grace even among those who will suffer his wrath. His mercy and grace is not just extended to those who will one day believe. It is extended upon the masses who will curse his name to the day they die and then for eternity under his wrath. He shows kindness to those who hate him and are his enemies. He shows kindness to those who are called children of the devil. And not only is God patiently bestowing grace on the children of the devil... But if, if we are children of God, then we are so because once he poured out his love upon us while we were yet his enemies, while we were yet dead in our trespasses. Let's just look at Romans 5, 8 or Ephesians 2, 5, part of our scripture memory verses for this month. Unlike what the popular religious slogans of the day might want you to believe, not everybody is a child of God. At least not in anything more than the most basic generic sense that all mankind are created in the image of God. Scripture does not call all men children of God. God does not love everybody the same. Another good pillow quote for you. Cross-stitching. To say that God loves everybody the same is to diminish the gospel and the wonder of his mercy and grace that is received by those who have been united to Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, and those who have been united with him by faith, those who have been accepted in Jesus as sons by adoption, only they can call God their father. Turn with me to John 1, 9 through 12, while we read about Jesus' incarnation, the last of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. 1, 9 through 12. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In this passage, we see Jesus coming first to the nation that had been set apart by God throughout the Old Testament. And then when that nation as a whole 
when national Israel completed her apostasy by rejecting the Messiah sent to her, then Jesus gave those individuals who would receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. There is no doubt here. It is, it is not those who had a better sense than those around him that came to God. It is not those who were just smarter or more ethical or predisposed by their character or some other thing about them. It was not them who received Christ. It was those who were born of the will of God. It is only those whom God has purposed in sovereign election before the foundations of the world to be found in Christ. It is only they who are called children of God. So yes, God does show mercy and grace to all men. God causes the warmth of his son to sustain life and the sweetness of the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked alike. And by his example, we ought to deal with all men with that same kind of mercy and grace and honesty. We are to deal with all men in righteousness and fairness. And we are to do that because that is who we are in Christ, not because that is what they deserve. The sacrifice of Christ as well did in fact do something wonderful for all men. Even those who do not receive the forgiveness of their sins are still blessed by a common grace that common grace by which God patiently endures with the sin and the rebellion of evil men until all of his purposes are complete. Evil men get to live and enjoy God's good creation rather than being immediately snuffed out and face judgment. It is only the sacrifice of Christ that purchases that patience, that kind endurance of God as he works out his good purposes for his people. Yet the true wonder of the gospel is that in Christ, God has made a way for fallen, sinful, wretched men to enjoy something more. He gives them the right to become sons of the Father in heaven. The ungodly enjoy for a season the kindness and patience of God. But for those of us who are in Christ, we will experience the fullness of his joy and his love for eternity. For the ungodly, yes, their best life is now. Yet, beloved, in Christ, our best life is yet to come. So what is the result and the goal of being sons of the Father in heaven? We are to be perfect as he is perfect. That is what it means to truly be God's child. That is the goal and the final result of our salvation. This is the natural conclusion of this new paradigm that Jesus has been introducing in the Sermon on the Mount. So what does it mean to be perfect? Well, the word here that's translated as perfect is aptly translated as perfect yet it carries a more robust meaning. To be perfect is to be mature. It is to be complete. It is to be genuine. It is to be fully initiated and at the end of progress. 
in the context here, I believe that the connotations of our being perfect is that our obedience to the commands of Christ must permeate our hearts, our minds, our words, and our actions. Obedience must be complete. That obedience to Christ, following after Christ, cannot be simply an add-on to our lives. It must be who we are at our very core. And it must extend through everything that we feel, think, say, and do. Remember where we have been. This command follows six of these sayings. Jesus went to great effort to destroy any illusion that there could be a safe place for sin to hide in the life of his followers. They must not sin in their hearts. They must not sin by their words. They must not sin by their actions. They must not sin by their lack of actions. They are to be perfect, mature, complete, and genuine in who they are in Christ. That leaves no room for false converts or pretenders. There is no room for those that are only half interested or for disciples who want to keep one foot in the world or first go back and take care of affairs in their past life. There is no category for being a disciple of Christ in one's own strength. To be a disciple of Christ is to have experienced divine intervention, and it is to live in the continued realm of divine transformation. It is to be made alive by the Spirit of God, and it is to be sustained by the Spirit of God. Do remember how this whole section was started? Just looking back just a little bit in Matthew 5, 20. He said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He started this section there, that if you're not more righteous than the most righteous people you can imagine, then you will never enter the kingdom. And that greater righteousness that we have seen, that the disciple of Christ must possess, is the righteousness of God himself. And beloved, that greater righteousness is ours because Christ is ours. It is ours because we have been born again, not of blood, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. Because of this, we are called children of God. And we are called to live as children of God. Well, this whole thing seems impossible that seems like something that we could never possibly live out in our lives, I want to give some words of comfort. We will not always measure up. We will not always behave and respond how a child of God must behave and respond. In this life, we will fail and we will fail often. For everyone who is in Christ, for every true child of God, there is no end to the forgiveness that has been purchased for us on the cross by Jesus' sacrifice. The love of God for his children is so vast, so enduring, that we will never again find ourselves under the wrath and judgment of the Father. 
Because it is his work that has saved us and it is his work that will keep us. And what we do with those words of comfort will reveal a great deal about what is in our hearts. Maybe even reveal if we are true disciples or if we are just imposters. When we fail, do we find comfort in God's love for us and then respond in brokenness and repentance and thankfulness for his continued love? Is that how we respond? Do we seek ever more diligently to obey our Lord and to show our love for him? Or when we fail, do we use the comfort of God's willingness to forgive us as an excuse to remain in our sin? Do we sin so that grace may abound? In the words of Paul, may it never be. The fact that we will not achieve perfection in this life is no excuse to cease striving with all of our energy to be perfect, that is to be like Christ. Remember that to be like the master is the great desire of the disciple. And when the disciple is fully trained, he will be like his master. Just as in the Old Testament, it was a distinctive mark for Israel that they were set apart by God to reflect his character. So now the disciple of Christ is to carry on this distinctiveness yet in a more full and realized way. Well, as we finish this morning, I want to ask a couple of questions. Why should we love? And what does love look like? In short, what what does this mean for us? First, why should we love? Of course, there's a great deal of sentimentalizing about this. People often say that we should show love to those who do not like us because it might make them like us. Kind of the uh, treat your bully really nice and maybe they'll be your friend kind of mentality. Others say that God treats people not as they are, but what they can become. Well, this is a popular modern psychological approach, yet both explanations fail to recognize one well-established biblical fact. Men are born in and shaped by sin. They are not capable, apart from the work of God, of being anything other than sinful and rebellious. So we should love because God loved, and we should love like God loved. God did not set his love upon us because of something in us. He set his love upon us completely out of his good pleasure, his grace. We did nothing to earn or merit God's favor. He loved us in spite of ourselves. We should love like this apart from any consideration of the person or their worthiness to be loved and such be children of our Father who is in heaven. As we consider what this looks like, it may be helpful to consider the difference between loving and liking. Christ commands us to love our enemies. That does not necessarily mean that we will always like our enemies. We can show love for someone. We can actually be loving to somebody by treating them how we want to be treated, even if we don't particularly like them. 
A realistic view of our loving our enemies must include how Jesus related to his enemies on this earth. So his only example was not just in praying that God would forgive their sins they crucified him. There's other places where Christ dealt with those who were his enemies, or made themselves his enemies. Just think of how Jesus spoke and treated the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23, or how he responded as he drove away in this temple, all the false marketing and everything else going on, and cleared the temple of his father. Jesus' concept of love apparently was not stuck at the simple level of being nice to somebody. Love is not incompatible with controversy and rebuke. Remember, love in the New Testament carries very practical elements to it. 1 John 1, 5, uh, 1 John 5, uh, 3 talks about that this is love, that we keep his commandments. So what is a definition of love? That we keep his commandments. We show our love to God by our actions, by keeping his commandments. In a similar way, we show our love to our enemies, who we must also see as our neighbors by our actions. We do not best love others by how we feel toward them, but how we act toward them. As much as we like the warm feelings attributed to love, we cannot even count on that with those that are closest to us. If I rely only on my inward feelings for my wife to make her feel loved by me, I will fail miserably. Even if she has wronged me in some way, and I feel anger inside, I can still show her love by how I respond to her. In fact, I'm commanded to still show her love by how I respond. This is how love is. We not love primarily or not even, not least, not solely by how we feel, but by how we act. Love is designed to be acted out. Would it have been of any benefit to us if God would have set his loving feelings towards us, but yet never acted upon that love to provide for our redemption? Would that have done us any good? Be sons of your Father in heaven and live lives that act in love. Live lives that respond in love, even and perhaps especially towards those who hurt us, who hate us, who seek to destroy us. Remember that God is love. His children are to be like him. Go out and be love in this world without cause, and without any consideration for how we might be treated or loved back or how much it is deserved. And I just want to close us briefly here with Paul's charge to the Romans that echo what we have read so far in Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, I pray that you would make this a reality in our lives. I know I cannot live this way on my own. I know that my flesh will even battle against it and seek for my own advantage. Forgive my weakness. May your strength and strength of your spirit in me be shown to be wholly active and complete in all that is good that comes from me because it is ultimately from you. Father, help us to see this call from Christ as, as a joy and a desire, not as a burden, not as something to, be tr to try and get out of or to find so many caveats that we remain unchanged. Father, change us by your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We approach as we do every week, the Lord's table. And if you are walking faithfully with Christ, if you are looking to him as your righteousness, you are walking in obedience, not in perfection, but in obedience and in repentance, then I invite you in just a moment to come forward to grab of the elements to return to your seat and we will take them together in just a moment as we physically take something into our bodies to remind us of what it is to have faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for this continued reminder of the body that was broken of your son and the blood that was shed, the cost of the forgiveness of our sins, As we take these, we act out that kind of dependence that we have on his sacrifice and on his life as he is our righteousness. Use this as a means of grace to strengthen and encourage us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
and continued, I tell you, I will not eat again or drink again of this fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, we also look forward with eager anticipation for when we will see him face to face when the bride is united with the groom.